Well, I think we can all agree that the only thing that can follow that up is the word of the Lord. So <laughs> I'm going to be reading from 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 15, and then 24 through 25. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There are two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you to king, I anointed you to king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the words of the Ammonites, the swords of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Sid Truen, for those who don't know me. Um, I think I got everyone covered here today. But um, I'm the pastor here at North Cross Church. It's good to be with you all again. Thanks for coming. Um, as Damon said, I will just underline that we have a congregational meeting right after this. It'll just be outside underneath the trees, so please join us for that. Bring your kids. Um, it'll, be, it'll be a little bit casual, but also we'll get some good business done. So um, this spring and summer for our sermon series, we've been following along the life of David as told in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, and really just by sheer number of references alone, David is the most important figure in the Old Testament. And also you could argue he's the second most important figure in the New Testament next to Jesus. In fact, David is the name that Jesus refers to himself the most by. And Jesus is called the descendant of David, the greater David, right? David's son. But based on the one-two punch 
of these sermons uh, that we're about to do, that we're doing this morning and also what we did last week of 2 Samuel 11 and 12, where David commits adultery and then he murders the husband and he finally covers it up so deep it takes God's prophet and all of his wisdom to get David to come clean based on these passages uh, this passage this morning, its immediate backstory, David might seem a very unlikely, an odd choice for God. For God in the scriptures to make so much of, right? David screws up his life. On a whim, David takes everything that God had given him and he just trashes it. David lays waste to people's lives and relationships, perhaps especially his own. And this is why our title for our sermon series on the life of David is not called the man after God's own heart. <laughs> it's called the God after our own hearts. And we'll, as we'll see, God does not trash difficult people. People like us who are hurting and who hurt others. God pursues them with every good he's got, every strategy, every energy, every plan. But before we step into this story some more and look at the way that God tracks down and wins back people like David and people like us, let's pray for our time. Would you join me in praying for our time this morning uh, in God's words to us? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you uh, for the opportunity to sit in your words, as uncomfortable as they are, what they provoke in us. Uh, Lord, and my guess is that a lot of us are doing different things with this passage. Maybe we're internally rolling our eyes again. Heard this one before. Maybe we're pushing it at arm's length and saying, that sounds good for other people. Or maybe this just pulls all the old wounds and all the old problems that we have to the front and we feel like we're drowning. And I pray that you would be with us no matter where our heart posture is with this story. And Jesus, would you win us? Would you win us over to your truth? Your truth, not just about ourselves, but about you. Would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you help us to see you clearly as you are high and lifted up? Would you make yourself, Jesus, by your spirit, through your word, more believable and beautiful? To our hearts. We ask this in your name. Amen. So we all have this kind of complicated relationship to mirrors, right? We all have this complicated relationship with mirrors because we have a complicated relationship with ourselves. <laughs> Just think about the way that we relate to real physical mirrors for a minute. Mirrors can be these places that we strut in front of. We can preen like parakeets in front of a mirror. We can gussy ourselves up to make sure that everything is well with us and that, that we're looking our best today. Perhaps we need to fix our hair or we need to make and observe a few facial expressions to see how they come across. Or maybe we need to kind of extract the stray poppy seed from between our two front teeth. In other words, we kind of can enjoy mirrors sometimes. They have a useful function. And we can enjoy mirrors not just that they exist, but because mirrors exist to show us to ourselves. I think about the way I was, especially as a teenager growing up with mirrors. I was always very self-conscious about any reflective surface I passed. 
um, glass door fronts, car windows. It did not take much uh, in my self-consciousness. I would ask myself, how do I look? Handsome? Cool? What am I wearing? Does that work? Is this the me I want to present to others, to strangers, to friends? But mirrors can also be something that we avoid. Sometimes it's accidental. I do this all the time. I wake up late, I'm busy, I'm trying to get out the door, a thousand things are going on in my head and my heart and all around me, and I forget to even look myself in the mirror and my hair is a wild mess. I never even brushed it. Or we avoid mirrors on purpose. The question, how do I look, can feel so awful. We hate looking at mirrors because all we see are the worst parts of ourselves. The pale, blotchy skin, the flabby abs, the nose we can't stand, the ears we just want to hide under as much hair as possible. A friend of mine once told a story about a day when he was younger when he looked in the mirror and saw his reflection and he was filled with such self-hatred that he took markers and he colored his physical face until he disappeared under ink. All this is to say is that we can despise or adore mirrors depending on the moment and depending on the day. Why? Because mirrors make us consider something that we both adore and despise ourselves. We both adore and despise ourselves. Having this love-hate relationship in mind, James, the brother of Jesus, writes a letter in the Bible, the letter of James, and in it he compares the word of God to a mirror. God's word to us, the scriptures are like this mirror, and they make us consider ourselves as we are. But instead of showing us our outward appearance, they show us the inner realities of our hearts. The Bible reflects the fact that we are crowned with dignity, that we are made as palaces, but that we also reflect and are wrecked by our depravity. That is, we're broke down palaces, in the words of Francis Schaeffer. And so the question for us today in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 12 is this, the same question that David had to answer on that day that this passage happened, Will we choose to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word? Will we choose to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word? And this soul gazing does not look like self-righteousness. It isn't strutting and preening before God. It's not making sure we're perfectly presented to him and to others. But it's also, the soul gazing is also not the opposite. It's not self-hatred. It's not about cringing avoidance. And it doesn't involve culling ourselves with shame until we disappear, and the shame is all we can see. Now, according to our passage, choosing to gaze into God's words looks like what David goes through. We get honest about the way we hurt others and hurt ourselves, and then we own that wreckage. And this honest recognition is the beginning of what the Bible calls repentance. And then the only way we can continue to look into God's words for us and take them honestly is if we trust the overall message, the bigger message of the Bible, that Jesus is willing and able to fix us. Jesus is scaffolding for broke down palaces. He repairs and his repairs sometimes hurt, but they always restore. And this trust in Jesus' ability to restore us, the Bible calls faith. Faith. 
So 2 Samuel chapter 12 is going to be this real life examination of how to look at ourselves in the mirror of scripture and what, how do we respond to what we see. And this process of self-reflection is gonna be divided into three parts in our passage. First, we'll discuss how God's words are a mirror to us. We're gonna look at that in verses one through seven. Second, we're gonna discuss how God's words lead us to repentance. And we're gonna see that in verses seven through 13. And finally, third, we're gonna discuss how God's words invite us to faith, verses 13 through 15, and then also 24 through 25. These points are on your outline, maybe projected behind me, and in your electronic bulletin. Let's begin with verses one through seven and look at the first, very first point, 2 Samuel 12's description of what it means that God's words act like a mirror to us, but also for us. Let's look there together. Verses one through seven show us how a mirror of God's word works, how it often reflects us, uh, us to ourselves indirectly or at a slant, which is super interesting. Nathan gives David a third person story about someone else, a rich man, in verses one through six. In order, he does this in order to speak to David directly in the second person so that David can hear it. Verse seven, you are the man. Perhaps one of my favorite verses in scripture. Um, anyway, and if you think about it, the Bible's often doing the same thing to us when we read it, right? How we, look at the way we study the Bible. We're studying a story in the third person about somebody else, David, in order to hear what God has to say to us directly so that we can hear it, so that we can be you to God, second person. The spiritual mirror of scripture functions like a physical mirror in this regard. A physical mirror reverses our left and right sides so they can show us a facing image of ourselves. But it also can't have the light source hit it directly, otherwise that reflection is completely um, blinded and eliminated from our sight. But what's the spiritual reason that God's word works like this, kind of mirror indirection? I mean, why is it that God doesn't just give us a love letter, right? With all of his thoughts addressed directly to us in all of our circumstances. Or have you ever wondered, why is most of the Bible composed of stories about other people? Or like letters written directly to other people and not to us? I think that God's indirection like in Nathan's story, he uses this because our guilt often works in a strange way. It works much more like William Shakespeare's Hamlet and much less like Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart. I'm taking you back to high school English. It'll be okay, deep breaths, let's talk about it, okay? In Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, the narrator has stolen and then murdered a man and then he's hidden the evidence, he's buried the body under the floorboards of his house. But the narrator becomes overwhelmed with the guilt of his actions, right? A guilt that makes him think that he hears the old man's heart beating loudly beneath the floorboards of his floor, of his house. So loudly, in fact, that the police can hear it. And so in this fit of kind of conscience and guilt, the narrator confesses all of his crimes and turns himself into the police. But in William Shakespeare's Hamlet, Claudius has also stolen from and murdered a man, even his brother. But Claudius' guilt isn't overwhelming at all. 
In fact, he seems pretty happy about his life. So Hamlet, the son of the stolen wife and murdered husband, has to devise a strategy to awaken the conscience of Claudius, the thief and murderer. Hamlet puts on a play where he asks the players to reenact the story, a different story, just like the murder and the wife stealing of the false king Claudius. And the purpose of the play is one of the more famous lines in all of Shakespeare. This is what Hamlet describes the purpose of the play. The play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. So here's the point. Doesn't the Hamlet scenario sound a lot more like our passage, 2 Samuel 12 this morning? Like Shakespeare's Claudius and not Poe's narrator, King David seems happy. He's happy with his life, with a woman he stole and he's underwhelmed with his guilt. And so Nathan must approach David like Hamlet does Claudius, indirectly, with a story about somebody else, but also clearly meant for David. And really, David is just like us, and his story is just like ours. Often when the truth of God's words comes straight at me, I deny or I defend. When friends or family, spouses or siblings have like the courage to point something out about what I do that's wrong or, or hurts them, what, what I need to change, I immediately roar in the inside on the outside. How dare you? Right? We all do this. We all make a list of that person's faults and then we compare it to the list we've made of all of our virtues right? And then we either come out and say, with anger, hot and argumentative, or we get coolly distant, at least for a while. But what would it look like to live as if we could not see ourselves clearly? To start admitting that without a truth outside of us, we can't see all of ourselves. Without a mirror, you can't see your chin let alone the back of your head. Without the mirror of passages like this, we can't see the ways we abuse our power. Our power over others as parents, as managers, as friends, as pastors. Without the mirror of 2 Samuel 12, we won't see the ways that we can sexually objectify others in our hearts or harbor character assassinating hatreds and desperately, the ways we can desperately want or even expect what God has given to other people, but not to us. Whether that's a house or a family, a personality or a professional gift set. And this is the point of Nathan's speech to David in the story of 2 Samuel 12. God often speaks to us indirectly because often in our sin, that's the only way we can hear him. <laughs> And so we need to ask for and gather around others' wise opinions, wise opinions outside of ourselves. We need the Bible, written by God's prophets like Nathan. And we need biblical community. We need the church, friends grounded in God like Nathan. Here's where to start. It's often hard to find Bible passages for exact situations. And when you do, you get yourself in a lot of trouble because it's really usually not exactly about that. And so what I'd suggest, what would it look like to read the Bible so regularly, so repeatedly, so cover to cover, 
that you can begin to spiritually imagine what God would say in a given situation. That would be called sanctified wisdom. That's how you get it, by the Spirit. Or it can be hard to find people who are trustworthy and wise, but it's worth the risk to, act, to, to volunteer a confession or two about how you're really doing. What if you just answered that question, how are you, honestly? And just see how it went. Some people can handle it, but you get to ask, does this person get it? What it feels like to be a person? And then maybe if you feel like that's going on, you can grab lunch or coffee and you can say, how do you handle some of my harder issues about what it feels like to be me? Do they get grace? Will they acknowledge life is hard with you? Will they show you Jesus? Can you begin to be you with them? Or are they trying to ignore or control you? And then we also need to ask, what would it look like to be that wise person in other people's lives? To give away our time and ourselves, to ask other people to lunch and coffee, that would change our church. That would change our culture. But according to verses seven through 13, God's words to us are not just indirect like a mirror, they're also accurately reflect reality, just like a physical mirror. And this reflection of reality demands a response. And that response is what the Bible calls repentance or getting honest about the way we hurt others and ourselves and beginning to own that wreckage. And that's our second main point this morning, okay? So in verses seven through 12, God speaks through Nathan in order to lay out the truth, exactly what David did to Bathsheba and to Uriah. And God does this on both kind of an observational surface level, but also on a very sort of matters of the heart motivation level. We get a picture of an incomplete and very flawed king who despised the word of the Lord. And he has taken what is not his, a woman and her husband's life. And David's grasping sin has very major life consequences. It will lead to the death of four of his sons, his wife's public disgrace, and the near destruction of his God-established kingdom. But there's this common modern objection in the Bible that dismisses all this. So it says, you know, passages like 2 Samuel are just political propaganda. It's just a winner's history. If 2 Samuel is King David's royal account, how is this a winner's history? Think about this being included in the Bible. Would you include this in your story? I hope, but I don't know if I would. <laughs> how is the story of David and all of its embarrassing details anything but true? That is, our passage this morning, the Bible as a whole, is a mirror that accurately reflects reality the reality of historical events, the reality of one man's heart motives and our human heart motives, really. And but the shock of how this passage describes these truths continues. Look at verse 13. David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Where is the royal public statement of denial? Where is the artful spin? of a failure into an explanation of how the other person's actually to blame or how it just couldn't be helped. 
In this narrative, after all of the words of God against David, after all the passionate details about David's wrongdoing, David's statement feels like it falls short, right? It's so fairly um, incomplete. Doesn't it feel like that? (laughs) I mean, where is the intensity, David? Give me something. Where's the weeping and the pleading and the begging? You know, where's the apology tour? But I think a better question is why do we think we need to see that? Why do we think we need to see how David really felt? I bet he felt a lot of emotion, but the Bible chooses not to reveal that. So perhaps we're assuming more than what the word of God says about what repentance means or what the Christian life is after. For instance, in our spiritual lives, do we value emotions more than speech? Do we value feelings more than behavior or thoughts? Do we value passions more than desires or willpower? In repentance and in the Christian life, the heart is the central issue. And biblically, the heart is more than just a bundle of feelings. It definitely includes feelings, but it also is a bundle of thoughts and words and actions. And I really think Ralph Davis, a commentator in this passage, gets the deeper issue of behind our disappointment with David's repentance. Davis writes this, we still assume the intensity of repentance contributes to our atonement. We still assume the intensity of our repentance contributes to our atonement. What does he mean by that? We still assume the intensity of our confession adds to or even completes Jesus' forgiveness of us. We still assume we have to beg. We have to wring our hands. We have to promise. We will, that's the last time. We'll never, ever do that thing that brings with it so much shame and guilt ever, ever again. And we can often act like we have to wear God down. We have to wear him down by demonstrations of just how sorry we are in order to get forgiven. But God's word teaches us a different way. God guarantees his forgiveness based on his son Jesus' efforts, not on our efforts. Yes, we should ask for forgiveness from God, but we can do this with absolute confidence. God's ability and desire to put away our sin and to spare us hangs on Jesus and what Jesus has done outside of us in history. Please hear me. I don't think we just go through the motions. I don't think we take Jesus for granted, but I do think we need to take Jesus' certain life and certain death and certain resurrection seriously. We have to take into account. And these motions of Jesus, his intense atonement for us, are why repentance works at all. Imagine the way that would change the way and the quickness with which we repent if we believe that more. And so, like repentance of verse 13, the faith of verses 13 through 15 and 24 through 25 is extremely personal and it trusts in someone and something outside of us, who God is and what he's done. It's amazing to look at the way that they both work together in the same way. And so our third and final point this morning speaks to our faith in God's goodness and his intimate restoration or renovation project. 
So in these verses, like if you look at the beginning, in the second half of verse 13, we see the, the way that God's restoration works. God begins by telling us our sin does not define us. We are not primarily defined by our mistakes or our, our failures or even our doubts. In verse 13, Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. What a promise. <laughs> Just like that. God puts away our sin. He takes our sins as far as the east is from the west. By faith in the Lord Jesus, our sexual stumbles, our hateful thoughts, our jealous feelings are not who we are. They do not have to be character defining. We are not just piles of rubble. We are palaces. And by the gift of God's spirit, we are being rebuilt and renewed. We are being restored to a royal shape. The shape we're supposed to be. Verses 24 and 25 give us a glimpse about God's brick and mortar spiritual work and what it looks like. In these verses, we see God doesn't trash us. God doesn't lay waste to our lives and our relationships. He doesn't work his plan of rescue in spite of or despite David's sin with Bathsheba. He works his salvation for the world through and as a result of this sin. We have to wrestle with that. God chooses David's least likely wife, Bathsheba, who David secured in the least honorable way to make Solomon, whom Nathan called beloved of the Lord or Jedidiah. And as we discussed last week, somehow, in some way, God takes this unholy union of David and Bathsheba and makes it holy. So holy, in fact, that the, that the world will be given a king. A king whose name alone tells us that he will bring holy peace and holy love of God to all of the world. And this will first be in a flicker of King Solomon, and then it will burst into full flame in King Jesus. The Jesus who died to put away our sins, who resurrected so that we shall not die. <laughs> so you're sort of saying, how does this apply to my life personally? What does this have to do with me? What does the story of David's forgiveness and restoration have to do with all of my self-inflicted relational wounds, my sexual brokenness? Well, let me take a risk of getting too personal just for the sake of helping. Let me tell a story in my life that reminds me that Jesus is healing our most private hurts and how Jesus is tenderly redirecting my and our misdirected desires. In graduate school and seminary, I took a class called Sexuality and Sex Therapy. Sexuality and Sex Therapy. As you can imagine, it was a pretty intense and oftentimes very uncomfortable class to sit through. And the term paper was one of the last papers I wrote in all of graduate school, my third year, right, right before I started full-time ministry. But this quote-unquote term paper wasn't an academic research paper. It was a sexual history paper where I was asked to trace and to catalog all the many fault lines and fragments of my personal sexual brokenness. So I put that paper off for a while. <laughs> so you can imagine. 
So one night, the night before it was due, <laughs> I wrote down all of my thoughts. And I just wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I kept writing late into the night and early into the next morning. I wrote about my relationship with my dad, my childhood fears, my high school, college, and seminary lusts, the questions I still have about how to be a man, and of course my insecurities about this me going into that ministry. In total, I wrote 14 pages. 14 pages tracing the intricate details of my sexual sins and the sexual sins against me. And then you won't believe this part. I took that, I printed that thing off, that paper, I stuffed it into a tan envelope and I mailed it to Colorado where my female professor lived most of the year. And as I stamped and addressed and mailed the most personal longings I had and the most crushing sins I had committed, I imagined my professor somewhere in Colorado receiving my paper and casually sitting with a paper cup of coffee and a red pen and a stack of papers just like mine and restlessly flipping through the pages of my confessions of inadequacy. <laughs> and so months later, when I had moved across the country and started as a college minister, I received that same tan envelope in my mailbox. <laughs> and again, I waited. <laughs> when I finally did open that envelope, I reread my paper. That was pretty painful. And I braced myself for the, for the comments. I imagined the comments being sort of a mixture of moral disapproval with sort of spelling corrections. <laughs> but to my surprise, as I began to read the comments, um, her comments to me, I started tearing up. Let me quote some of the final comment that she made at the end of the paper, because I bet a lot of us feel like this. I bet a lot of us feel like sharing our deepest, most private wounds with Jesus in prayer. It feels like those prayers feel like mailing our sexual secrets to Colorado. And we can brace ourselves when we do that for the red pen and a lot of disgust. So it helps to share how this distant feeling figure lovingly traced the lines of my own brokenness. Professor Sharon Hirsch wrote this. Thank you for letting me read this, Sid. It was a true privilege. Although you write your story beautifully, you don't consider it a beautiful story. I pray that you feel the kiss of Jesus on your heart and that your heart burns, burns with that kiss and not your failures or your humanness. Do you get that? What that means? Do you get that Jesus is kissing the parts you think of yourself that are the most ugly? Do you get that Jesus is kissing the places we hide in the darkness? And do we know this morning that Jesus' kiss can burn away any of our fears and failures? All we have to do is come to him. All we have to do is come to him with our hearts and sit with him in prayer or gaze into his words to us. All we have to do is come to Jesus, really, and show him where it hurts and say, just this, I have sinned against you, Lord. And he already knows. 
He knows just what you need, just right now. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for the opportunity to look into your word, to gaze at wonders that are too big for us. The ways you know us, the fragility, the, the, the tenderness of our frame, and the ways that you're gentle, but truthful. The ways it can hurt, but the ways it can heal. And I pray that even this time in, our, in your word this morning would hurt, perhaps, but only to heal. Would you heal us, Jesus, in the dark places, in the secret sins? Kiss those places, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.